Welcome to the Health Disparities Podcast, a program of the Movement is Life Caucus, where we have conversations about health disparities with people working to eliminate them. I'm Dr. Minnie Campos. I represent the National Hispanic Medical Association as a member of the Movement is Life Caucus. These two organizations, of which I'm so honored to be a part of, have joined in a collaborative effort to bring an end to the health and healthcare disparities that exist in our country today. During this podcast, we are going to delve into the issues of healthcare disparities as it relates to the Latinx community and COVID-19, and we'll be particularly focused on the role that communication of medical information within a community ultimately plays in the health outcome of its members. Today, I have the distinct pleasure of speaking with the president and CEO of the National Hispanic Medical Association, Dr. Elena Rios. I'm going to tell you a little bit about her because she's an amazing woman. She is a Californian, born and raised in Los Angeles. She received her undergraduate degree at Stanford University and her doctor of medicine degree from UCLA. She then went on to complete her residencies in internal medicine at Santa Clara Valley Medical Center in San Jose, California, and White Memorial Medical Center in East Los Angeles, California. She has built an outstanding career in health policy research and administration, as well as medical school recruitment, and has held numerous appointments in both fields within UCLA, State of California and the federal government, where she participated in a series of government-led research initiatives within the White House and the Department of Health and Human Services. In 1994, Dr. Rios co-founded the National Hispanic Medical Association based here in Washington, D.C., and in 1988 was named its president and CEO. She has received numerous awards throughout her career, including being named as one of the 100 most influential Hispanics in the nation by Hispanic Business Magazine. And then in that same year, also received the American Public Health Association's Latino Caucus Distinguished Career Award. Welcome, Dr. Rios, an amazing career. Uh, You know, for our audience who's not maybe familiar with NHMA, could you tell us a little bit about the organization and, and the kind of activities that support its mission? Minerva, thank you for having me, and I'm very proud to, to uh, have said that I'm one of the founders. Uh, there was actually a group of us who came to the White House in 1993 to provide input uh, to the White House on health care reform, and in so doing, we met uh, the African-American doctors and the Asian uh, nonprofits and the Native American uh, nonprofits. And we actually met the Hispanic nurses and Hispanic dentists for all organizations involved in healthcare reform in 1993. And we thought, well, gee, why shouldn't we have our own uh, ability to, to say we represent an organization? And so we soon learned that uh, by having a, an attorney and a consultant and putting together a small board of directors and bylaws that we could create our own organization. And we did. So the National Hispanic Medical Association was born in December of 1993 at the White House. And then we quickly uh, decided that in our bylaws, our main mission would be to empower other Hispanic physicians to work with all of our partners, whether public and private, uh, to improve the health of Hispanics and other underserved. We also decided that in order to do that, we would probably three major efforts. One was to be an advocate and to provide input to Congress and the White House and HHS and other national level organizations for policies and programs. 
that would uh, have the ability to improve the health of Hispanics. And the second thing is we wanted to develop leaders. And so leadership development and mentoring have been uh, uh, really the fabric of our organization. Uh, having uh, leaders at the mid-career doctor level, at the resident level, and mentoring for the medical students, and now even pre-meds. And the third thing was really just to have a network and to have a communication system. So now we have a website, a newsletter that goes out monthly, and we also have sharing of information across our membership, where the people are in their careers, as well as a communication system among our local chapters. And we now have 16 local chapters, you know, as well as the national level. We still keep a national conference and, and uh, visits to Congress as part of the national conference. That's amazing. And it, it's true that it has grown significantly since I joined way back when. And uh, it's exciting to see the chapters and the interest that young physicians uh, all over the country have for the organization and are finding their voice uh, within their local communities, which is really one of the goals that you had from the very beginning. Dr. Rios, on this podcast, as you know, we spend a lot of time discussing health disparities and the social determinants of health that drive those disparities. Which of the health disparities are you most concerned about when you think about the Latinx community? And which social determinants should we be thinking about as it relates to our community? Well, I think that overall, Latinos have uh, chronic diseases that show up earlier uh, due to uh, lack of access to information, lack of access to care. Um, so I'll just, I'll, I'll just name one, and that's probably diabetes and obesity. but. Diabetes especially is a chronic disease that our families have dealt with, with a number of, of family members uh, through generations. A social determinant of health uh, in our communities, uh, I, I think it's having access to fresh fruits and vegetables and good food. So we, we call that having food insecurity, where we live in poor communities. In general, this is a you know, big generality for Latino poor people that are in rural communities and uh, ignored by the large supermarkets, for example, where you don't have the access to the best food and nutrition. As we live through this pandemic, are there some disparities that you think are worsening among our community? You know, there's two different approaches, I think, to the COVID epidemic in terms of disparities. One is where you live uh, and living in crowded housing multi-generational uh, families uh, with young people going out and coming back and, and you know, infecting the elder, elders in the household uh, faster because they're all living together uh, or the lack of social distancing because you're, you have so many people living together. So that's one aspect that's predominant among Hispanics. The other aspect I think is be, being part of the, what, what is known as the essential workforce and having to work, not being able to stay home and, you know, work from a computer, but actually going to the supermarkets to work or going, being farm workers that have to go to the farms to work, um, the poultry industry, the meat industry, uh, and the hospital industry, where we see a lot of the, uh, the, 
the lower, I'll, I'll say the lower level workforce in the healthcare system are Latinos in the nursing homes, uh, you know, the janitors, the cleaning crews, uh, nurses, aides. We have a lot of Latinos within healthcare. In your, in your experiences up to this point with a pandemic, have you personally seen or been concerned about anything in particular? I'm thinking right now about uh, access and has that worsened during this pandemic? Have the levels of insurance worsened over time? Uh, within our within our own community, so making this even more difficult for people to to get the health care and information that they need. Yes, uh, definitely. As small businesses, where the majority of Latinos work, they have been impacted. So they have closed their doors, especially the restaurants, all the hotels you know, the, the different types of industries where Latinos work, uh, which means Latinos have lost their insurance, which is primarily connected to employer-based insurance. The other way to look at it is uh, Latinos are told to stay home so they don't necessarily go to a clinic or don't go to the local public health department clinics um, or their doctors. So they're not getting the information. You know, most of our information about health is through the healthcare system. And if you're not savvy to where you can, you know, look up cdc.gov and find out information about COVID, right. not going to have uh, the access to information. There are approximately 60 million Hispanics, as you know, in this country. And data reported by the CDC has shown that Hispanics with COVID-19 are four times more likely than non-Hispanic white to be hospitalized with this infection. And we also know, as you stated before, depending on where you live, in some areas, uh, there may be are two times as likely to die from the illness. In trying to understand the multiple reasons behind this outcome, you have spoken about the lack of medical education reaching many of our communities as part of the problem, something we don't hear so much about, uh, but you have identified as something that's crucially important uh, to our community. Yeah, there is a real lack of health information, how to be healthy, just basic nutrition, cooking, changing our recipes, uh, and then how to understand symptoms that are basic to COVID-19, for example, uh, and also how to wear a mask and social distancing. These are all basic preventive health information that are not getting out to our community because they're not inside the clinics or the hospitals because they're think, they think they have to stay home. I see it more now that we've gone through the five, six months in the United States now. You'll see some information about wearing a mask before you enter a supermarket, let's say. But the supermarkets, the churches, the places where our Latino families go don't necessarily explain what's going on in the world of COVID. And I think that's ba that basic information is something that a health communications campaign led by the CDC, led by our public health departments, hasn't really been funded. We have seen the funding go to the healthcare workers to have better PPE and to have more testing information. But when it comes to actually educating the communities that are the most vulnerable, that is something that needs to happen. We need better 
information reach to our communities? It's a complicated issue, isn't it? Uh, and we know that there are ways in our community, even though we're we're not a homogenous community, you know, we're we're very different. Uh, different. There are elements in our culture, however, that are the same. And I think it would be nice for our audience to hear how you think uh, our communities receive health information. How do our families play a role in this? <laughs> yeah, well, I think it really is our family uh, passing down information that has worked from our grandmothers to our mothers. And, and I say that because so many times uh, it's the fathers in, in our communities, that, in our families that have had to leave the family to go to work. They're the breadwinners, right? The traditional role of the mothers have been to understand how to keep everybody safe, uh, protect, you know, be the protector, and also how to understand what works in, in uh, uh, I'll, I'll say, healthier food to the extent that they, they know about healthy food. Uh, but also just, you know, going to the doctor, going to the dentist, all, when you talk about accessing healthcare, it's usually the mother's role to make sure that her children, her husband, or her significant other is really the, is going to um, access what's needed, you know, in terms of, uh, I'll just say preventive care, like vaccinations for the babies, et cetera. So I think that our families have had some very strong cultural roots uh, in terms of knowing about teas and herbs and uh, boiling water and making sure that uh, you throw out food that's no good, uh, that kind of thing. But when it comes to learning about something new, which is a new virus, it's a little different. Uh, that information needs to be, become part of our families, not just individuals, but our families. So that, so again, the, the, cycle of life that we will pass on that information to the next generation. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Um, I know that NHMA has uh, taken on a coronavirus call to action. Tell us a little bit about that, that program within NHMA and how it's affected uh, the members and, and what kind of uh, feedback they've gotten from the communities that they've spoken to. The National Hispanic Medical Association, again, is just so in interested in having a presence among Latino communities that we have had a call to action for our members who are mainly doctors or associate members who believe in the mission to improve health. Uh, we also have residents and we also have medical students and they all talk to patients within their own uh, space, whether they're in the academic world, in a teaching hospital, or if they're working in clinics or out in the community. And what we've told everyone, our call to action is to please go to our hispanichealth.info portal, where we have information about COVID, uh, and especially in articles and information that's related to uh, our Hispanic populations or other poor populations. And right now, one of the uh, important messages is to have more Hispanics join or enroll in clinical trials because the COVID vaccine development is through clinical trials, and we're not going to know how safe the vaccine is uh, because it can impact different people different ways. Different people can have a little different reaction 
to a to a shot to an immunization, and uh, we'd like to see more Hispanics uh, be part of this national effort to enroll. And there are two different um, clinical trial websites. One is coronaviruspreventionnetwork.org, and that is a website run by the National Institutes of Health uh, on the vaccine clinical trials that they are supporting. And the other one is COVID vaccine study one, that's the number one.com. And that website is from the one company called Pfizer uh, that we work with who has their own vaccine clinical trial. Have you wor- worked with the uh, television media, for instance, Univision or Telemundo? Have they called upon us to speak to their audiences? Oh, yes, definitely. Uh, we have doctors in different cities, like Omaha, Nebraska, Los Angeles, New York City, some of the Texas cities uh, that have been called on to be on not only TV, Univision being a major network in Spanish, Telemundo also has called us. Uh, and there's been some radio interviews that have happened in different markets. One big thing that I'm really happy to be a part of is the National Hispanic Publications Association has asked me to moderate a session and to interview Dr. Fauci in their national conference that's going to come up at the end of the month. I think uh, the difficulty health information reaching our community uh, has a lot to do, too, with trust. Who are the people that our community trusts? What is your experience with that? It's so important. And especially in our communities with people that come from Latin American countries where they don't trust uh, the programs run by a government, even though healthcare is not totally run by the government, public health departments are seen as government agencies. Uh, you know, clinics are funded by the government. So here we think of things as a safety net to help our communities, but when you have immigrant populations coming from other countries where they don't trust their government. They see healthcare in the safety net world, in the poor communities as something not to trust. So it becomes very important to have doctors and nurses who look like them, who can talk to them. I think Latinos favor having uh, conversations about their family and what they're doing before they open up and talk to a doctor or a nurse. The other thing I think is that's important is that we do have many uh, mixed families, which means mixed status. Some of our young families or even our grandparents are undocumented. They're not yet citizens, even after living here many, many years. And so they're very, very afraid of, of having information, uh, you know, be sent to the INS and, to, you know, because of deportation. We are also used to pushing for, and it's vitally important to have all kinds of communication, written communication translated into Spanish. And that certainly is important. That's one of the main ways that we can communicate mm-hmm. with our families. But do you think this is enough? Is just getting a Spanish flyer given to you, is that enough to convince you? in our community to follow the instructions on the pamphlet or is is the messenger probably more important of course yes and that goes to your major point here about trust a piece of paper isn't you know unless you have a branded campaign with a latino name latino uh, it'll help the latino family you know with messages on the paper right uh, people aren't going to pay attention to it 
and they will pay attention to something if their doctor gives it to them and says how important this is to your family or to your community. Uh, or, you know, the churches uh, talk about the importance of, of uh, being healthy and so that you can help your family, uh, you know, continue doing whatever they're doing, going to school, working. Um, but I think the trusted messenger is very, very important not just the information. So then that segues into something that I want to really pick your brain on, and that has to do with what actions can we take as healthcare professionals, uh, healthcare systems, you know, government officials in reaching these vulnerable Latinx communities with this best practice communication that we all want them to receive. Uh, what kinds of things uh, should our listeners walk away with in terms of possible actions they may take within their own institutions or within their own practices? I think the best, best type of action for individuals that are in our healthcare arenas is to respect uh, Latino patients that walk in the door and invite them back and invite them to bring their families. And, you know, word of mouth is very, very important. Being uh, open to the importance of health and healthy lifestyle. And it's not just going to a doctor or going to a hospital, uh, especially with COVID, it, 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 it's, you know, people have to be brave to do that right now. So they're, they have to be thanked for coming in and to share information that they learn inside, you know, if they're getting uh, uh, tested, for example, they should encourage more people to come in and get tested. So I, I think that it's all about having a dialogue and, and treating your patient or uh, the, the person that you're talking about, about talking to about health or healthcare activities to treat them like a, a partner. We talk about the patient provider partnership and doctors have a, a, a bad tendency to talk down to Latinos and uh, Latinos being humble and Latinos also being afraid of authority will never open up and ask questions uh, because they, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of in, a, in awe or shocked. And I think that the doctors in, in our communities need to realize that they need to, to be more familiar, to have a more familiar um, conversation and have the Latino patient open up about how their family is. And, uh, you know, and then they can talk about the importance of understanding the disease uh, symptoms and uh, what to look for in COVID, for example, fever, shortness of breath, you know, when it's an emergency type of situation to be sure and uh, call your doctor or call your, you know, clinic. You've talked a lot about the trusted messenger and, in, and the uh, success that community healthcare workers have had in our communities. Community health workers are part of the public health system in other countries, in Latin American countries, for example, and, and I think the United States finally realized the importance of having people from a community uh, work as volunteers or in some cases are being paid now to, to help be an echo chamber of good, healthy habits. For example, with COVID, I think community health workers can get the message out to people in the community about where to get tested. Community health workers can also help drive people to get tested. I, I have to say that testing for is, is a very important with the COVID-19 pandemic 
because we're all trying to work towards the same goal of decreasing the number of people that are infected. And if you have symptoms, especially fever and a cough and uh, feeling fatigued, but you also have shortness of breath or you lose your sense of taste or smell, and others have, are having diarrhea and other GI symptoms, just feeling of knots in their stomach and not feeling uh, normal, that given that COVID-19 is a virus that is all around us right now in the country, in different places, you may see more hotspots than others. But if you have those types of, of, of symptoms, it is important to get tested and every county public health department is announcing free testing where you can drive. If you're in a car, you can drive and, and get tested or you can walk to get tested, take a bus, what, what have you. And the tests are, are simple. One part, one test that's simple is the swabs being put in your nose to have a little piece of mucus uh, be taken. Another type of test is just where you spit into a cup and it's your saliva. And I'll just say that those tests are simple, but they do magic in terms of letting you know if you're positive that you want to be sure and quarantine yourself and stay away from all your other family members for, you know, they, they say up to 14 days because you could infect others. If you didn't take the test, you wouldn't know if you're positive or not. And the whole goal of testing is to have people know that they are positive so that they will not infect others. And that's how we're going to be, uh, have a healthier society. Uh, and in, in the case of the Latino community, a healthier neighborhood, healthier family, household, so that, the, so that people can still go to work or go to school because they're not being infected. And that's the important message about why we do want people to get tested right now for the COVID-19. You and I talked about an, a study that was done in Pennsylvania that was a CDC um, grant that was really supposed to go into Latino communities in Pennsylvania. Surprisingly, there are you know predominantly Latino cities. Mm -hmm. You know, I I didn't realize that uh, to teach them about prevention for chronic disease. When the pandemic hit, they converted their their whole infrastructure to go in there and do the same, except this time not so much. Uh, chronic disease, but to in fact teach about COVID and how to the best practices uh, in terms of, of making sure that we don't infect each other. And then secondly, part of their program was to talk, do telehealth, you know, or talk to them on the telephone. And they use those technologies actually to communicate information to the patients and gave them an opportunity, the patients themselves, to ask questions that they had about COVID. So it was a very successful, in fact, I put it on our little list of things to talk about, uh, about using uh, existing infrastructures and technologies to leverage you know, community efforts. So I, I think you're, you're right, 
in terms of understanding the importance of telehealth right now with COVID-19 and having the opportunity for more uh, doctors and, and nurses from doctor's offices or from clinics to communicate to their patients through telephone, for example, or through computers and having this uh, telehealth experience where the patients are actually talking to a live person, able to provide feedback to a live person on how they feel. So telehealth is, is just amazing, has, an, has been an amazing tool that has, uh, its use has been expanded exponentially during this time of people having to stay home and not being able to go to the uh, doctors to, to, be have, to have more social distancing. Um, the problem is that we have many uh, in our poor communities don't have access to the high level uh, internet, uh, you know, to be able to have uh, telemedicine consultations. But we do have uh, trusted voices and, and people talking through podcasts uh, that you can listen to. And I think that that's the way of the future to have. Uh, we were talking about having more trusted communications because you're listening to a live person or you're listening to a, another Latino uh, healthcare worker uh, who may not be a doctor, but who, who you know, may be a nurse, could be giving messages to their patients and learning how to uh, uh, provide, be a healer, be a teacher. That's what being a doctor is all about. And medical students need to learn that too. And I, th I do think that patients really uh, feel more um, respected when they have people talk to them instead of just sending a brochure in the mail and, and, and you know, just it goes into the uh, file called trash faster than anywhere else. Yeah. <laughs> people get so much what they call junk mail. But when you listen to messages from somebody who's, who's very uh, interested in sharing information, uh, who's concerned, you know, you can tell. And I think that's very important for Latinos to have more Latinos talking to them about health. And especially now with COVID-19, talking to them about the importance of testing or talking to them about the importance of watching out for symptoms and, and, and calling the doctor if there's a very bad symptom like shortness of breath, for example, where people can die if they don't get treated. One of the things I'd like to talk to you a little bit about has to do with sort of the upstream issues that, that exist in our communities. And, and that is that when we have these such critical resources that we need to uh, work across, across boundaries. So for instance, people facing evictions, um, you know, many people risk, you know, not having homes in the near future. Uh, and, and because of that, compounding their their poor health and, and potential for, for ill health uh, with serious financial struggles. What, what can we do? Vote. Vote. <laughs> I agree with that. Well, I think, I think as healthcare professionals who understand the connections between COVID-19 as a pandemic and the economic downturn that our society is living through and things are only going to get worse as we see more people sick 
and more businesses closing and that cycle where businesses are going to decide, well, should we or shouldn't we? And let's just make a decision. It's so uncertain in terms of when uh, businesses will get back to pre-COVID-19 levels of function that a lot of small businesses, especially restaurants, are just closing. And that means our community is losing their jobs. So I do think that health professionals need to understand the importance of looking at the candidates for any level. I'm talking, you know, we're going to have a big election in November. Every four years, we get to elect a president, a vice president, but we also elect congressmen and senators. And these are all representatives of, of perspectives. We need to vote for those who believe in having more public health prevention and more public health prevention campaigns and education into our communities, as well as funding to help our communities survive. And that means having, having more unemployment funding, you know, uh, family, uh, family leave funding, uh, child care funding. Uh, funding for our schools to have better computers and equipment so more of our children from Latino families can can actually learn through online teaching with better computers. There's so many different programs. And I and I think that to look at what the candidates stand for, the, their agendas, their platforms is so important. And that's what I mean by actually being a, a citizen that practices their right to vote. This COVID pandemic has brought to light the most vulnerable communities in our country should have senators and congressmen and a president and vice president who can make changes necessary for our communities to thrive, not just survive, but to actually thrive. Dr. Rios, you have given us so much to think about. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. Uh, and we hope to see you again so we can really explore more of the issues that we know exist in our communities and, and give you a chance to talk about them and educate us about them. We have been talking about the challenges and importance of getting accurate, culturally appropriate, and up-to-date information to our vulnerable Latinx communities. And we've been talking with Dr. Lena Rios, who is the president and CEO of NHMA. We want to thank you again for being with us, and we want to thank you also for listening uh, and hope that you join us in the future. Subscribe to our podcast. Uh, we bring incredibly talented people to the fore, and uh, we learn a lot from them. So thank you. Thank you.